Well, church, let me invite you to turn to the book of Colossians this morning. Take my sunglasses off. I usually don't do that at preaching, but it's good to be outside today with you. Glorious day. We do want to let you know this will be last time we'll be worshiping outside this year, and so next Sunday we'll be meeting inside. And so we'll be excited to be able to do that. We're going to actually celebrate the sacrament of baptism next Sunday. And so I look forward to being able to rejoice uh, with you at, at that opportunity. This morning, I'm excited to be able to speak to you from Paul's letter to the book of Colossians as we started this letter a handful of weeks ago. We're going to just consider a couple of verses there in chapter 1, really laying out Paul's, beginning Paul's wonderful prayer uh, for the Colossian church here in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 9. Hear now the word of God. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased well, to pray for you, of, uh, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge kind of, of his Christian will and all spiritual wisdom type. and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Father, we thank you for your word in which we can now consider. We ask that you would guide us and lead us. We pray that you would help us be more equipped to be people of prayer as we meditate and consider Paul's wonderful prayer here recorded in your scripture. And so guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was in 1924 when a young missionary named Ray Edmond staggered out of an Ecuadorian jungle desperately ill with typhus fever. When his doctor left his bedroom, he sadly whispered to his wife, Edith, his feet are already cold. He'll be dead by morning. In that climate, you would not wait to, to bury someone. And so his funeral was planned for 3 p.m. the next day. Edith, who had just worn her wedding dress one year earlier, began the sorrowful work of dyeing her dress black for her husband's funeral. As she did, a thousand miles away, in Boston, Massachusetts, Edmund's former pastor, Joseph Evans, interrupted a prayer meeting at his church, saying, I feel we must pray for Ray Edmund in Ecuador. And by the way, there are about a dozen people who witnessed this event, all of them collaborating what was about to happen. That group began to pray earnestly for hours for Ray Edmund, when suddenly Pastor Evans felt this overwhelming sense of peace, called out, quote, praise the Lord, the victory is won. A thousand miles away, miraculously, Ray Edmund in Ecuador recovered from his illness. Edith's dress did not, however. Ray Edmund would go on to be the president of Wheaton College, a wonderful Christian college in his day, for the next 40 years, giving him countless opportunities to recount this incredible response to prayer that God worked miraculously in his life. Of course, we've seen in Paul's letter here in Colossians that he begins his letter um, praying for them, praying for the miracle of their existence in this little town, Colossae. You remember we considered last week, verse 3, when Paul says, we thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And so he tells them there in verse 3, as Paul often does, I'm praying for you guys. 
But it's when we get to verse 9, which we'll consider this morning, that he not simply tells them that he is praying for them, but he actually tells them what he's praying for them. And we'll begin to consider Paul's prayer. In fact, I think it will take us about three weeks to get through. It's from verses 9 through 14, and it is this incredible, I think perhaps, uh, life-changing prayer in which Paul offers, and I look forward to exploring it with you. In fact, I want to challenge you a little bit as we begin studying Paul's prayers. When you think of the great apostle Paul, what do you think of? I mean, how would you describe him? I think many people would say, oh, Paul was the brilliant theologian. Maybe Pastor Cody would say, well, Paul was this fearless church planner. Maybe another would say, Paul was this winsome preacher. But I wonder how many of us would say, oh, the Apostle Paul, he was a man of fervent and earnest prayer. And I think the more we study his writings, the more we'll see that's who he is. And perhaps all his fruitfulness in the ministry in which God gave him was a result of his commitment to God through prayer. In fact, when, when God saved Paul on the road to Damascus, and he remember he sent the prophet Ananias to him to heal him from his blindness. And Ananias said, how, how will I know who he is? And God would say to him, I think the King James says, behold, he prayeth. Right? I mean, what a wonderful way to start your Christian life. He's the man that is praying. And for, once again, it's how Paul started his Christian life. It how, it's how he continues as we see him praying here, beginning in Colossians 1 and verse 9. In fact, we're told why he prays, which will be our first point this morning. We'll just simply uh, consider Paul's prayer by thinking why he prays, how he prays, and what he prays. We begin by seeing why he prays. Notice the first couple words in verse 9. And so, he says, and so. In other words, for this reason. Well, for what reason? Well, read on in verse 9. And so from the day we heard. Okay? Well, that raises the question, what, what has he heard? Well, we explored that last week. Look again in verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. So what has he heard? He's heard of their growing faith and love and hope. And in light of what of this great blessing in their life, in light of what God is doing in their life, Paul says, for that reason, I pray. So the blessings of God upon this church moves Paul into prayer. I mention that because I think that's unusual. I think most of our prayers are prompted by the negative. Most of our prayers are prompted when things go wrong, when there's a need, when there's a trouble to overcome, like typhus fever. Since that, that time, when something bad has happened, we, we, we pray. Hardship forces us to our knees to pray. But I wonder if blessing does the same. I think so often blessing just leads us to skipping and perhaps ignoring God in prayer. And so Paul's unusual here, isn't he? He said, I've heard how God's blessing you, and for that reason, I pray. We might call his prayer preventative maintenance in the life of the Colossian church. It's perhaps what C.S. Lewis had in mind when he wrote to his dear friend Penelope and said, I especially need your prayers because I am traveling across a plane called ease. Everything without and many things within are marvelously well at present. Therefore, pray for me. I think we see something of that happening in Paul's life. And I wonder, I want to challenge you. Maybe we need to incorporate this into our prayer life. I, mean, I wonder if all your prayers for last week are answered, what would happen? All your prayers were answered. God answered them. All the prayers you offered last week, what would happen? Who would be converted? What missionaries would be sent out? Whose marriage would, would flourish? What, 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 what uh, children would grow in their faith? Who would, who would abound in faith, love, and hope, as we considered last week? 
Or if your prayers were answered last week, we might say, well, all the hospitals will be empty. Well, that's good, of course. We would love for that to happen. But I wonder if there's more for us to pray about. I think we, if, if, if that's our answer, if my prayers were answered, you know, people will get well. We might pay particular attention to Paul's prayer before us. In fact, you notice how earnest he was in it as we consider, secondly, how he prays. And I'll be brief here, but I do think it's interesting to note, as we read on in verse 9, he says, And so, from the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you. So from the day we heard of your faith, love, and hope, I haven't stopped praying. From the very beginning to this day, I continue to pray for you. I just think this is a stunning commitment to pray prayer. That's why I say we might think of Paul as a man of earnest and fervent prayer. I could imagine Paul and Timothy, who was at his side, praying after every meal for the churches that they are aware of. Or you could imagine Paul, while he's stitching tents, he's offering up prayers for these churches. Or, of course, we know Paul here, he writes this letter from prison, and much time on his hands. And so how does he use it? He uses it in prayer. And he continues in prayer. I haven't stopped praying for you. I continue to pray for you. My, my prayer is unceasing. And this is a bit of a challenge to me. I wonder if it is for you as well. I think I'm guilty. In fact, I know I'm guilty. And maybe you are as well of beginning new endeavors in prayer, only to see those commitments quickly wane. Right, beginning's easy. We begin things, I mean, beginning a diet, that's easy. Sustaining it's hard, isn't it? Beginning an exercise routine, beginning a commitment to God's word, certainly beginning a, a life of prayer is easy, but continuing it, that is when the difficult times come. And so even as, as Paul challenges us this morning, as God's word challenges us to a life of prayer, maybe, maybe we just need to start small. If, you don't, if you're not in the habit of praying regularly, praying daily, maybe you can make a commitment of, the, I'm going to pray for five minutes. I'm going to pray over my morning coffee. I'm going to get my morning coffee. And, and uh, if you're drinking coffee, you're already in a mind of praising God, aren't you? And so uh, you might say, well, this is a wonderful time to praise God and to pray for him. Maybe, maybe for some of you, that's just where you start. So, so I'm just going to give, give God this time to pray. I hope many of you are praying, as I've, I've asked uh, the church to pray a number of sermons ago, for the, every day for the rest of this year. That the word of God, remember that we saw this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, that the word of God would run ahead and triumph through the members and the ministries of Hamilton Baptist Church. Are you praying that? I know some of you let me know I'm praying that every day, Pastor. I, maybe, maybe you can and pray that as well. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 1. May the word of the Lord speed ahead and be honored amongst the members and the ministries of Hamilton Baptist Church. That we will be unceasing in that prayer at least through this year of 2020. And so Paul shows us how to pray. Of course, thirdly, he shows us what to pray. And uh, from really from verse 9 all the way through verse 14 is the content of his prayer, and it is somewhat amazing. We'll just consider a couple verses this morning. And you notice he begins by praying that they would know God's will. For we read on in verse 9, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul says, I'm praying that you would know God's will. Now, when Paul uses the phrase God's will, he uses it differently than how you and I typically use it. When we say, I want to know God's will in our context, what we're usually saying is, I want to know God's personal guidance for me. I got some major decision. You know, I, I, I need to know what I'm supposed to do here. Should I marry Zedekiah or not, right? And so, you know, I want God to write, you know, big 
words in the sky, no, or give me a sense of peace, yes, I should marry him, right? And we want to know God's, uh, God's guidance for us. We, want to, we say, I want to know the will of God. I want to know the will of God. Should I make this move? Should I take this job? Should I join this church, right? That's, that's what we typically mean when we're talking about God's will. But that's rarely, if never, how the Bible uses that phrase, the will of God. It's almost never in the context of your personal guidance, but it's almost always in the context of universal guidance, a guidance that fits all of us. For instance, Paul would write in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, it is God's will, what's God's will? Here it is, God's will that you should be sanctified. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And so what we learn in the Bible, when Paul talks about God's will, he's not talking about God's specific plans for you as individuals, but his plans for us as people, how it is we are to live in God's world. And I think this is incredibly important. I think we all want to know, what are we supposed to do in this world? How are we supposed to live? And so Paul says, well, we need to find that out by knowing God's will. I've shared with you before a story of a prominent businessman speaking at a conference near Oxford University when he said, as you know, I have been very fortunate in my career and I have made a lot of money, far more than I ever dreamed of, far more than I could ever spend, far more than my family needs. He spoke those words with determination and strength, but then, un un unexpected by him, he began to hesitate before he continued his pre-planned speech. And as his pause grew longer, a single tear rolled down his cheek. And he began to speak extemporaneously saying, to be honest, one of my motives for making so much money was simple. I, I, have, to, I have to have the money to hire the people to do what I don't like doing. But there's one thing I've never been able to hire anyone to do for me. Find my own sense of purpose and fulfillment. I would give anything for that. And I, I don't think he's alone. The great Christian author Oz Guinness says, in more than 30 years of public speaking and countless conversations around the world, I have heard that issue come up more than any other. At some point, every one of us confronts the question, how do I find and fulfill the central purpose of my life? What is my purpose? Well, I think that's what Paul's talking about when he talks about the will of God. How, what is our purpose here on this life? What are we supposed to do? And when we talk about our purpose, according to God's uh, as, uh, economy, it's not so much what job should I take, but what kind of employee I should be. It's not so much should I marry her or her, it's what kind of husband should I be? What kind of citizen should I be? What kind of neighbor should I be? This is why God lays out for us his will. You say, where do we find this will? Well, we find it in the scripture. That's what Paul's telling us there in verse 9. That we be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That we would grow in our understanding of, of God's word. And so I want to just point out that we don't discover God's will in this way through these private experiences. We find it through his revelation. We find it in his truth. That's why we as a church, we're going to major on preaching and teaching and applying the word of God. We're going to be a word-centered people. Why? So we can grow in our understanding of who God is and what he wants for us. That we might learn more and more how scripture applies to our lives. 
This is what Paul's praying for the Colossian church. You remember this church has only been around for about five years. Most of them are Gentiles, by the way, and therefore are devoid of a rich Old Testament background. And, and of course, the scripture that they have is largely, at this point, only the Old Testament. What makes matters worse, we'll find out in, in Colossians chapter 2 that they're besieged by false teachers. And these false teachers are coming to them and saying to the Colossian Christians, we have a better knowledge for you. We'll see this in, when we get to chapter 2. Right? We, you can receive this knowledge through mystical experiences. And, and we could imagine, as we'll study this, this uh, scripture before us, that these false teachers would have come to them and say, yes, Jesus is great. We love Jesus. Well, thumbs up for Jesus. But you can have more than Jesus. We could go beyond Jesus. Right? You can experience spiritual fullness. What you need is this encounter with the divine, with the angelic, with the supernatural, and that will change everything. And I tell you, this is what often false teachers do. They don't come and reject the gospel. They don't come and say, let's get rid of the gospel. They come and say, yeah, we like the gospel. The gospel's great. Jesus is great. We're just going to add to it. We're just going to put more on top of it. This is what the Roman Catholic Church does. Yes, Jesus is wonderful. We love Jesus. We worship Jesus. But let's complete your Christianity with sacraments and rites. This is what the Mormons do. Yes, thumbs up for Jesus. Jesus is wonderful. The Bible's great, but let's just add to it. Here's an extra book for you, a book of Mormon. This is what the Pentecostals do. They say, well, yes, you have Jesus, that's wonderful, but let's complete it through this mystical encounter and experience with God. And false teachers have been doing this from the very beginning. They continue to do this, and I want you to understand how damaging this is to the church, how divisive it is. When people sneak within the church, as they did in the Colossians, and say, well, it's good that, that you guys are learning the Bible. That's good. But there's more that you're missing. There's a more profound experience that you can have than what's being taught here. And so we'll find in the book of Colossians, this is why Paul keeps pointing them to Jesus over and over and over and over again. You never move beyond Christ. God, will you fill them with the knowledge of your will and understanding your truth so that they might walk in your ways? You see, we just don't want our minds filled with God's word just to have a mind filled with God's word. The knowledge of God's will has a purpose, and that's to lead us to walk in God's ways. As you see there in verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Why, why do we want to know God's will? So we can change the way we live, to change the way we walk. This is simply not a truth to contemplate but a truth to change our lives, to change our loves, to change our desires. He says, I want you to walk worthy of the Lord. We looked at that phrase a couple times in our study of 2 Thessalonians. It, and I just want to remind you, I'm not going to spend much time there. Worthy of the Lord does not mean deserving of the Lord. It means fitting to the Lord, appropriate to the Lord. And so it is unworthy of the Lord to live in impurity and to live in disunity, and it's unworthy of the Lord to live in unforgiveness and in rebellion. It's unworthy of the Lord to live in silence and in isolation from other Christians. And so he says, I'm praying that you would know God's will so that you might walk in God's ways, ultimately, and lastly, we'll spend the rest of our time here, so that you might bring God pleasure. Bring God pleasure. Look what he says there at the end, uh, not the end, middle verse 10, I think it is. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. I think, really, you look at all what the six verses here of this prayer, all the way through verse 14, I think this is the ultimate kind of central idea of this prayer. I want you to please God. 
I want you to bring pleasure to God. I just find that stunning. That I have the privilege, the honor of pleasing the Lord of heaven and earth. The King of kings. And Paul prays this for them. I want you to please him. Of course, if you are pleasing the Lord, I asked my kids this last night. If we are pleasing the Lord, who then will we not be pleasing? And they were quick to say, as you might even say in your own heart, if we're to please the Lord, we won't be pleasing the world. We, the two are mutually exclusive. The world will oppose Christ and his church. Because as Pastor Cody reminded us, 260 million Christians living in persecuted context. The world stands in opposition to, to God and to his people. 50 different countries, you will find yourself, your Christianity limited or persecuted. And the world opposes Christianity. In our day, it certainly did in, in the day in which Paul wrote this letter. He is, after all, in prison when he writes it as a Christian. In fact, in the Colossians' day, to become a Christian meant to reject the pantheon of gods that were worshipped in that town. To reject those gods put the community at risk because the gods were responsible for the harvest. The gods were responsible for order. And so to reject those gods would have, would have uh, caused them to be shunned by many in their community. In fact, Christians, if you read the actual critics of Christianity in the first couple centuries, you'll find out that the Christians were uh, powerfully persecuted in those days. In fact, they were mocked. The, the Christians had no temples. That was totally foreign to that mind. How could you have a religion without a temple? Right? In fact, they were accused of being atheists. That They would go on and they would declare that they are eating the body and drinking the blood of a man who was crucified in a Roman province. They were accused, you read the critics, they were accused of cannibalism. They would talk about how we give our brothers and sisters and we greet them with a holy kiss. This idea that we are united, that we are become brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, they were accused of incest. They, they were totally ostracized in this day. They were a bewilderment to the culture at large. They did, could not understand them. And therefore, there was incredible pressure on them to bring their faith in line with the cultural expectations. Incredible pressure on the Colossians and the Christians of this day to please the world, to get with the times. Do you think that pressure exists today? Do we face that as well? I'm afraid we do. And I'm afraid... That it seems to me, in my estimation, many Christian churches are succumbing to the world's expectation of them. Many seems today to abandon Christian Orthodox beliefs that the church has held for 2,000 years, casting it out the window so they might please the world. My brothers and sisters in Christ, you're going to have to decide who you're going to live to please. Because you can't please the world and God at the same time. Those two are mutually exclusive. And so if we are going to please the Lord, we're going to realize that the world is not going to be pleased with us. But I think there's another group that we can't live to please. And I would suggest to you, if we're going to please the Lord, as Paul prays here in verse 10, you probably won't be living to please yourself. Pleasing me. And I'm sad that it seems to me in much of Christianity you have one group of Christians who are, who are abandoning our beliefs and, and accommodating an increasingly secular culture, uh, getting on board with uh, the right side of history as we're told today, embracing this sexual revolution that's happening all around us. And then you have another segment of Christianity that is truncating the gospel 
and telling us that the gospel is all about pleasing you. It's all about uh, meeting your needs. And we talk exclusively about our faith as if God has saved you, God has forgiven you, God's going to bless you, God's going to take care of your problems, God's going to fix your health, God's going to straighten out your kids, God's going to fluff your pillow, and on and on and on we go. That God, God's going to do this for you, he's going to do for as if God follows us around just to make our life better, as if God exists to please us. And you will find, I think, many pulpits today, sermons like, you know, God's six steps to... Uh, the best life you could have now. You'll find, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid, many books about, you know, God's secrets for overcoming the COVID blues, right? I mean, that, that's going to fill church. I'll tell you how to overcome the COVID blues. And what, what we see is that preaching today has become therapy, has become self-help therapy rather than the careful exposition of God's word and its application to our life. And what we're doing is we're, we're declaring to people, just in the background, we don't come out and say it, but what we're declaring is that God exists to, to help you through your day. God exists to, to be a positive and, and encouraging influence in your life. God exists to, to make everything wonderful for you. And so what do our churches do? I say this with humility in my heart. I'm sure there are many things that I'm doing wrong as a, as a pastor, but there is some conviction here. What is it we communicate to, to uh, Christians when we say, listen, you like contemporary music? Come at this time. You like traditional music? Come on this time. Right? We'll, 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 make, it, we'll make worship appealing to you. I mean, would you, would you like a 15-minute sermon? Right? No, don't answer that question. Okay? Right? Well, we could give you that. Right? And so what we're doing is drip, drip, drip behind in the background. This is about you. This is about you. This is about you. God exists to enhance your life. And I speak with conviction in my heart because this is how I used to live as a Christian. I used to think, you know, that, that God is, is there just to make my life go easy. And so I'll worship him and I'll follow him as he comes and, and blesses me and takes care of, of all my needs. Until my first year in seminary when my whole Christian faith was turned on side of its on, on its head when a guest preacher asked a question that has sat with me for the last 20 years. He said, do you feel loved by God because he makes much of you or do you feel loved by God because he gives you the ability to make much of him? And I sat on that question for about a week. Do you feel loved by God because he makes much of you or because he gives you the ability to make much of him? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that all my Christianity was based upon God's going to make much of me. And by God's grace in, in my life, it began to transform me. And I began to realize, God, I, I want to live for you. I want to sacrifice for you. I want to give to you. I want to serve you. I want to honor you. I want to please you. I want to live for God's pleasure. I can think of no greater cause then I get to please God himself. You get to please God himself. This church gets to please God himself. Now, if we're living to please God, does that mean our pleasure gets thrown out the window? No, it actually doesn't. In fact, in pleasing God, if we're rightly related to God, we'll find in pleasing God, we find our pleasure. Let me say that again. In pleasing God, we will find our pleasure true pleasure. We do please ourselves by pleasing God, by putting God first, if we love God. I think this was brilliantly taught by a 19th century Danish 
Christian philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard. Now, I know all of you woke up this morning saying, I hope we do some Danish philosophy today, okay? And so if you find this boring, just check your phones or whatever you need to do. In fact, I was teaching my kids about Soren Kierkegaard last night. I said, there's a Danish philosopher. My nine-year-old said, Danish, right? He got all excited. We thought we were having dessert. Okay, no, he's from Denmark, and he was a brilliant, brilliant man who explained that people live one of three ways. He said many people live in what he called the aesthetic, the aesthetic. And what he meant by that is many people live their life by just following their dreams, going after their pleasures, doing whatever they want, following wherever their heart takes them. I'm just going to go get it. He called that the aesthetic life. He said another group of, of people, they live what he called the ethical life. That is, they're not following their dreams, they're following their duty. They're doing their moral obligation. And so he says, most, most of this world's doing one of those two things. They're either they're, you know, the captain of their soul, doing whatever they want, or they're doing their duty and doing their obligation. He would argue that neither work. In fact, he, he, he would say neither work because you see people vacillating between the two. Right? You know people, I trust, who, who live that aesthetic life. That is, they just went after whatever, wherever their hearts led them. They, they grabbed it all, and they found it empty. They, the, once they had it, they found no, no fulfillment in it. They had some religious conversion, and now they're off and doing their duty. You know people the other way who are, who are raised in a very kind of moral, duty-bound home, right? And once they're free from those bounds, what do they do? They just run off. And they do whatever. They go from the ethical to the aesthetic. And we go from the aesthetic to the ethical. In fact, Kierkegaard would say, one represents the younger brother. I'm going to go into the foreign land. I'm going to grab whatever I can in life. Give me my money. I want to live. I'm out of here. The other represents the older brother. I'll stay home. I'll do my duty. But I'll resent it every moment of the day. And both individuals despise the father. He said there's a third way to live. He called it the spiritual. He said, you don't need to choose between the two, duty or delight. He said, in the gospel, when we become rightly related to God, our duty becomes our delight. Our delight is to do our duty. And we, this happens when we see who God is through the cross. You see, the cross wins our affections so deeply, so powerfully, that we are so in love with God because of what Christ has done through his cross, that when God asks us to do something, even when it's hard, even when it's painful, even when it's sacrificial, it actually is what we want to do. Because we find delight in pleasing him. Our duty and desire become one. John Newton wrote about this. He said, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. Listen, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. He, what he's arguing is duty and delight become one when we have seen his beauty, when we are drawn to him, when we are in love with him. You say, where do I see his beauty? Where do we see the beauty of God? Where do we see the majesty of his, of his mercy and his justice and his wisdom and his love and his patience and, and the, the depth in which he'll go to secure our, our salvation? And we see it, of course, in the cross. It's there that we gaze upon the, the work of Christ in the cross that where he wins our heart. In fact, Newton would go on to write, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. So let me give you an example. Let's say, let's say I, I, I say, you know, 
I've been standing up here for a little while. My feet are sore. Do you mind rubbing my feet? Okay. Now, that's a disgusting request, right? Feet are gross. We all agree. And, and you would, in your mind, say, yeah, I, I do mind. I don't want to get anywhere near you. I actually have very nice feet, by the way. Uh, but I, I do mind. I don't want to get anywhere near your feet. And so you have, a, you have, a, you have a, a choice between you, right? I could do the, the good thing, maybe the right thing. This is a terrible illustration now that I think about it. Uh, uh, sorry. I should have come up with something better. I, the, to rub your feet, or I could do my delight and to walk away from your stinky feet. Now, what, what, if, what if someone you are madly in love with said, baby, I've had a really hard day. I've been on my feet all day. Do you mind rubbing my feet? What do you do? You stop what you're doing, and you rub, rub their feet. Right? Or Leger said last night, you, you pay one of our children to rub their feet. Okay? <laughs> Anyways, they're, they're, their feet get rubbed. Now, it's the same desire, the same request, rather, but different results. What's changed? Well, your affection, your love. Listen, it, it, if, if you're in love with someone, they ask some, you to do something like that, it, though it may not be something you, you terribly want to do, it's, it's no great loss to you because you're in love with them and, and pleasing them, what does that do for you? It pleases you, right? Because your pleasure is bound up in their pleasure. Their happiness is bound up in, their ha in your happiness. If you're indifferent towards someone, their pleasure is at the expense of your pleasure. Their happiness costs your happiness. But if you love them, their pleasure is your pleasure. Now, my brothers and sisters, if you love God, if you are in love with Christ, obeying him should become increasingly pleasurable. Sacrificing for him does not steal your happiness. In fact, I, I, just, I just thought of, of another, I'll be quick. Uh, this perhaps is, uh, you can relate to better. Many, many of you tithe to this church. Many of you give, sacrificially. A tithe is 10% of your income. I think the Bible teaches that we should do that. Many of you do that. And I would guess that the vast majority of you do that. Do not begrudgingly do it. Do so with great joy in your heart. You're not thinking, oh, I have to give this. I don't want to give this. You are actually pleased to give it. Now, you could have a different lifestyle with a 10% bump in income. You can have a better car with a 10% bump in income. Your life can be easier with that. And yet what you do is you give it without any thought of not doing so. You actually find pleasure in doing it. Why? Because you have an opportunity to bless God and his people. What, what's happened? Your, ple your duty has become your pleasure because you are in love with God. And so what we need to do as we seek to please God is we need to fall more in love with him. We need to gaze upon his beauty. We need, what would Paul pray in 2 Thessalonians 3, 5? May the Lord direct our hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. And that we might gaze upon what Christ has done to secure us, to reconcile us to God and how he has blessed us. And that his death may become more astonishing to us and, and the resurrection become more glorious to us and sin become more vile to us and the, the expanse of the kingdom more amazing to us and eternity more delightful to us and Christ becomes more breathtaking to us, and we think, I get to please him? I can please Christ? Are you kidding me? Why would I want to do anything but that? My duty 
has become my pleasure as I fall in love with him. So my brothers and sisters, why not, you know, we're about to start this work week. Monday, Monday morning, you get up and you think, I get to please Jesus today. Oh, dear God, I, I want to please you. I want to please you with how I help my kids in their virtual education. I, I want to please you in how I relate to my coworkers and how I respond to my neighbors. God, I want, I'm about to turn on the television. I want to please you and what I choose to speak how I choose to spend my time. We might even pray, God, if you give me one thing today, this is what I'm asking, that I might bring you pleasure. Paul says, I'm praying for that. I want that for you, Colossians. I want you to live for the pleasure of God. Do you pray like that, Christian? Is that on your heart? I increasingly long for Hamilton Baptist Church to become a, 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 a people more committed to God through prayer. You, you realize how many opportunities we have to pray together? You know, we have a, a Tuesday uh, morning virtual uh, prayer meeting that Pastor Cody leads. And, and we have about eight or nine community groups that meet throughout this week and gather together. And largely, not, not exclusively, but they are praying for one another. You know, there are many people in this church, they get together every other week or so over a cup of coffee. And they pray for each other. You know, you, you can have, you can, you know, someone may... Uh, another member of the church may meet, uh, work in your building or in your city. You can once a month say, hey, let's grab lunch together. Let's just pray for one another. Let's lift each, each other up in prayer. Do you know every, every week we as a church, we send out um, uh, an uh, email on Wednesday. We call it the midweek because we're creative around here. Okay? And we send that, and the bottom of that email is a prayer guide. Do you, are you aware of that? And, and there, I, in fact, yesterday I was praying for uh, Emily Snyder. And that little girl in her womb. This is on my prayer guide. I was asking God to continue to form that girl. I was reading Jeremiah, that, and, and God says, I, I've, I'm forming you, and I knew you before I formed you. I was praying for that little girl that God would lay his love upon her. I was praying for Melissa Walston yesterday, according to my, this prayer guide, and Quentin, as God is going to bless them, starting a family. And I was praying that when that child is born, Melissa will be overwhelmed that she got the privilege, united with, with, with Quentin, with making one who bears God's image. You know how extraordinary that is? That we can actually, by God's grace, create more of his image bearers, and that would overwhelm that family as they start their family. We have this incredible privilege to pray for one another, as I think God wants us to, that he calls us to. In fact, as you came in over by that desk over there, I don't know if you picked one of these up, but we have uh, updated our church directory. And you notice that we have a, a new format of this church directory. These are all our members and our regular attenders. And you notice, watch this, it's, it's pretty awesome. You just take this and look where it fits, right? It goes right, ooh, isn't that cool? Right in your Bible. And what, what's also cool, you grab one of these, you open to the last page, all right? Look at the Zs, the Zilke, we love the Zilkies. Um, you notice what page number that is? That's page 30. We've done that intentionally. We want this to be a guide for your prayer. And so whatever day of the week it is, you just open to that page. Yesterday was the 7th. I was praying for Nancy Colbert yesterday. Because that's, she's on page 7 of my church directory. I said, what did you pray for, Nancy? Well, I was studying Colossians 1. And so I, I, I prayed that God would fill Nancy with the wisdom of, uh, of his will. That she would grow in understanding who God is and what he wants for her. And I prayed for Betty Jo Cooper yesterday. 
I ask God not only that he would strengthen her as she mourns the loss of Roy, but that she would grow in her understanding, as Paul uh, shows us, that she would have a comprehension of God's truth and that God would protect her from false truth. And I prayed for Bob and Ruth Cornwell yesterday, that God would fill them with all spiritual wisdom. I pray that God would, would help them uh, understand how to be godly neighbors, that he would give them wisdom to be godly neighbors to their unbelieving neighbors that are up there in Lovettsville. I prayed for Butch and Cindy Corson yesterday. And I asked that, that God would enable them to walk in a manner worthy of, of him. And that in, in the relationship with their girls and all their grandchildren, that their walk before them would resemble something of Jesus. What if, what if we all grabbed one of these and we all just committed to pray for one another? What would God do in our life? You know, Paul's just not praying because he's got nothing else to do. He's just doing it because it changes lives. It changes who we are. And God has given us this incredible opportunity that we might pray for one another. I, I started this message even now as I close it, saying most of the time what we do is we pray in times of trouble. Right? The doctor's report, the blue lights in the rearview mirror. Right? You pray then? Right? We, we pray with a troubled child. Right? And these things lead us to, to prayer. They, they do so, I think, even uh, amazingly of the non-Christian. When these dangers happen in their life, trouble comes, you even find non-believers calling out to God. You, I, I think God gives us those opportunities. Especially if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, maybe you're watching online, you're not a Christian. You know why God allows these troubles in our lives? At least one reason is to shake us a little bit, to shake us from the reality, from the false reality that everything is okay. Because if you're not in Christ, everything is not okay. And these small troubles in your life are just God's grace to you to wake you up to the reality that you have rebelled against him, just as I have and everyone here has and is not reconciled to him if you are apart from Christ. You can read, about, Jesus taught this in Luke chapter 9. Why does God send trouble into this world? To, to help us understand that we need to get right to God, that we might call upon a Savior. I only know of one. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, who died upon the cross to pay for all my wickedness, who paid my debt to a holy God, and three days later rose from the dead so that I too might live forever with him. And he says to all of us, wherever we might be, whether here or online, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Would you not even call out to him now as we pray? Father in heaven, we're thankful for the great encouragement that your word is to us. And challenge it is. I'm so pleased to study these passages and think about them and how they apply to our life. Help us, we ask even now, that we would increasingly become a people earnest and fervent in prayer. And that we would not simply pray when things are difficult and hard, but Father, that we would pray for one another as your word instructs that circumstances would not only spurn our prayer, but your scripture would give rise to it. So help us to be a people committed to asking you to work through prayer. In particular, we pray even now that we may grow in the knowledge of your will, not simply so that we could know your truth, but that we can walk in your ways. We want to walk in your ways 
because we want to please you. Will you help that be our great desire? May the duty of your commands be the pleasure of our hearts. We ask that you would do even a mightier work in those who do not know you. Perhaps there are some here today, some who could hear the sound of my voice, who are apart from Christ. Will you not work in their life what you have done for them through Jesus if they would trust in you? Would you not help them even now to call out to you, God, please forgive me of my sins. Have mercy on me, a sinner. I believe that Christ is your son who has died for my sins. I believe he was raised from the dead to show that he has conquered that final enemy. And I yield my life to you as my king. Save me. God, would you not help one to call out that commitment to you, that they might know Christ as their all-sufficient Savior. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.